Welcome, book lovers, to another Adapted, where we talk about books that have been turned into movies. And today, we're talking about Neil Gaiman's Stardust, so stay tuned. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we are indeed book lovers. Book lover, Marissa Serafini, welcome to the show. Hello, Phil. We are here once again. That's right. Our library is filling up. Yes, it is. Pun intended. (laughs) I really enjoyed this one. I enjoyed this too. I saw... So a couple of things before we even get started. Uh, Of course, you can get our rundown in the description box, so that way it has all the various things. And hopefully without saying, it's going to be spoiler-filled. Yes. Both for the book and both for the movie. Uh, There's, of course, going to be differences we're just going to talk about. uh, And therefore, you've been warned. Now, we've done books that have been turned into many uh, films, which, in fact, the next... I'll I'll tease it now. Usually we save it to the end, but Mm -hmm. I'll tease it now. The next book that we're going to do is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which has been turned into so many different things. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that one was because I don't feel many people know the actual source material. Yeah. Uh, but we digress. Overall thoughts for Stardust. Well, I originally saw the movie when it first came out in theaters. Loved it, loved it, loved 2007. it. 2007. 2007, yes. I was in high school, just saying. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. Fantasy and drama and romance. It, it has all my favorite genres all in one movie. And then knowing... After the fact that it was written by the book, I always wanted to read the book, but somehow never got around to it. And then I'm glad for this show that you you chose this book to read, and I got really excited because I loved the film. And when it came out on DVD, I bought it that day that it got released. Like, I really enjoyed the film because I thought it was so good, and I was really excited to read this book. And I'm glad that the book was just as enjoyable as the film. And sometimes we like the book more the, than the other, or conversely. And I enjoyed both. I really enjoyed uh, the fantasy, the characters. I liked the writing style, and we'll definitely get into it. But overall, I really enjoyed it, and I can't wait to talk about it. Neil Gaiman, for me, is a very visual author, and so it translates really well. Now, for this, I actually saw the movie first, and like you, it, it, it was a breath of fresh air. It really was, because it had all... It, it took things, but it never went too cheesy, mm-hmm. and it had the right fantasy, and the and the characters were very well crafted, and of course Robert De Niro as the pirate captain, Shakespeare just just just, just took it out of nowhere and was amazing. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, of course, as as the witch and so forth, like all these characters just came to life in such a beautiful way, and uh, and therefore I wanted to read the book. And I was quite captivated. Uh, you, you know, for me, I think he translates extremely well. Whether it's Coraline, American Gods, now is being uh, is, is being done as a TV series, mm-hmm. and I would love to see more th- of his work turned into whether TV series or movies, and in particular the Graveyard Book because that's we did the Jungle Book. It's kind of like his version of Jungle Book, and I think it's fun. Uh, and one of the things that I didn't realize until. Now is the fact that him and I share the, a birthday. Oh, November do you 10th. Really? November 10th. Me and Neil Gaiman. Birthday buddies. That's right. So, you know, 
he holds that in my heart. Very neat. Um, so you definitely have that in in common with each other. I love when that happens. Uh, I really loved the style of writing because this particular one, I mean, it, it could, it, I felt when I was reading, it felt like a young adult novel, but it's more of an adult type of fantasy book. But then watching the movie, that was more a young adult style, um, just in storytelling and narrative. But I enjoy it because I think his writing is so broad and it can touch on like multiple demographics that anyone at any age could really enjoy his writing that was his intent with this book was to write he you know we'll talk about his inspirations but you know taking those inspirations he really wanted to write a a fantasy novel for adults and in fact the version i have in fact says a fantasy novel for adults (laughs) you know and when we talk about the adaptation of it they changed that very sexualized part of the book and made it more whimsical in the movie there's definitely a lot of sexual things going on in the book. There is, and in the movie, it's way more PG, PG-13. Um, but I, I don't feel like they went over the top, and it, it, not any time during the book it felt ever gratuitous. Um, you definitely understood what was happening, but then it didn't linger on too long, and it just moved forward really fast. So. And what what I appreciate about it, he's an English author, so that the story takes place in England. So he's utilizing utilizing his knowledge of these things. And what he, I love his sense of magical realism. You know, there's a town, and just over the wall, there's mm-hmm. another town and another world, and it's got and it's it, it's got unicorns, it's got witches, it's got wizards, it's, it's got, got has magic and and the dark elements too. Um, I, and then I like that because he so easily blends the realistic with the fantasy, such as you know the real town that anyone can grow up in and is really familiar with. And then you cross the wall, this this border and you're in literally in another land with different types of people and personalities and just elements of that defy regular human nature and i think it's fantastic because they all blend together so well yeah one of the things i don't know how much game you've read is that ability to keep it uh, almost matter of fact like it just is you know, in particular for me, Coraline has that sense of duality. And in fact, that that is two worlds and that doesn't spoil anything. Uh, Neverwhere is also a, a, a version of that where the sewers are their own completely different world of London in particular in that book. So he he's able to craft that and it seems to be a motif in a lot of his writing. I, I like that. And this actually is my first Neil Gaiman book and I've known about his writing. I just never really got around to reading him until this book. But I liked it so so much that I want to read his other ones, especially, you know, um, learning that he tends to write different worlds in his books is definitely appealing toward, to me as a reader. And one of the... He, he has a fascination with fantasy, right? It, it, it's known, whether it be Tolkien, whether it be C.S. Lewis, even to the more modern uh, – well, I guess those technically would count as modern, but uh, Ursula Le Guin. Uh, she, and Edgar Allan Poe, um, mm-hmm. and who's a famous author, and who also has that dark fan fantasy type of writing style as well. And, and Gaiman in particular, like one of the things he's absolutely fascinated with is Norse mythology. And so he, he, a lot of his 
fantasy elements sort of come from there as well in terms of what's possible. In fact, he has a new book out called Norse Mythology. Oh, excellent. Maybe we should read that next. <laughs> but that's not adapted into anything. Not yet. Um, but that that sounds amazing. And I, I think he, he does a great job of setting up different worlds within one big universe and everyone just, like just exist and coexist with each other um, quite well. Uh, I love it. So we're, we're dancing around these, these worlds, but let, let's talk about the world of Stardust. Yes. Uh, when we enter into it, uh, it's fairly easily explained. You know, and for me, the tough part, I would be very curious for those of you watching or listening – did you watch the movie first or did you read the book first? Because, you know, for us, we've, we've seen the movie. Therefore, we're going to go into it with a certain understanding. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps in that sense, I was able to visualize it because literally I had already seen the visualization of it. Right, right. I th- I think the great thing about this book, uh, because there are really like three main storylines that are going on. We have Tristan and Yvain, and then we had the the nameless witch in the book, and then we also had Septimus and the the rise to power that he's trying to find. So we had like three different storylines. I like how the book easily sets up in the first fifty pages, sets up Tristan's story and how he was conceived and how he was born, and then we get into the witch, and then we get into the Septimus, and uh, it does an easily it, easy job of establishing who's who and their stories and their backgrounds. And then once we have the three different establishments, then they blend together at the same time simultaneously, which I enjoyed. I was very surprised that it was only ten chapters overall. But each of the chapters, one of the things I really can appreciate about Neil Gaiman is the fact that his stories move. He he knows when to pause and give a little bit of description, like the, the the fact that he didn't really describe, he doesn't spend pages upon pages describing anything, mm-hmm. and yet you can visualize this world is fantastic to me because I've read other authors that spend pages upon pages and I'm still like I have no idea what the hell this place is <laughs> right, um, which our, our next author. It takes a lot of time in detailing one particular thing. Um, I agree. When I was reading this, at the end of the book, I'm, I consciously thought, I was like, wow, not, never once was I bored. Uh, it, I think there was great pacing in the book. It didn't spend too much time on one thing. We were constantly moving. The characters were constantly moving and traveling, therefore naturally progressing the narrative forward. Um, it never was bored or slow or tiring at any moment and um i i think there was always like a kinetic movement to everybody absolutely and and though they had their various different motives overall and maybe just how whimsically it was written no one to me at the end of the day seemed that evil even at the end uh when when the star kisses the un- unnamed wish she feels bad for her and that's what she does she kisses her versus i mean this is the, she's been trying to take your heart right and that's what i also enjoyed about the book because having watched the movie who that does a great job of it uh setting up an antagonist to our protagonist the witch is the main antagonist and then in the book the witch was like someone who had a dark motive but even at the end was still on some level very human 
and having Yvain like feel for her and have empathy and 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 some sympathy and giving her a kiss on the forehead, like even at the end, the witch was like, okay, I'm I was still happy for Yvain too that she found her happiness, and the witch was like, okay, I didn't get what I wanted, I'm just gonna move forward in my life. Yeah. I mean, in a crazy way, it's 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 kind of insane to think that he's basically taking all these elements. You mentioned the, the, the three storylines paralleling each other, and then they con- convulge into one. Each of these, in essence, like if you were an author setting out to write a book, could be their own storyline, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and what he does so masterfully is that he takes each of those elements and is just able to combine them in a way that's not convoluted or um, – I'm trying to think of the other C word. Confusing. <laughs> Confusing contrived maybe yeah something along those lines i agree and i think you know some writers are really great at doing that and but that's also a testament to his writing of good establishment of characters we clearly know who's who spending the 50 pages on tristran in in the book and then spending another like 20 on septimus like he does a good job of showing who's who what their motives is and how they play into the part when they finally meet each other and one of the, one of the things that really works is the fact that the motive very early on is identified as the same. Because mm-hmm. there's often books you meet a lot of characters, and in particular, I can think of William Gibson kind of does this, where you meet various characters, and yes, their their storylines are converging, but it's like you don't really know that. Whereas right off the bat, you know everyone's goal is get that star. Right. And what I liked about Septimus' storyline is it wasn't really after the person. It was just what she had in her possession, <laughs> and which he didn't really know. He just He's just trying to find the, the pendant to fill and gain his, his reign on the throne. And I liked how he didn't really have a dark motive. It was just something for his own personal selfish reason. Um, but it wasn't really towards anyone else. I mean, killing his brothers, yes, that's dark. <laughs> I but, mean, I was going to say, like, yeah, yeah. you got to... It, it was dark, but how they treated it, it didn't seem like over-the-top murder. Yeah. Well, luckily, he didn't murder his brother Primus. Yes. But he did have to avenge his death, and the interesting part was the way the book told it, it made Septimus ultimately look like an incompetent fool. Like, like the witches were just so much more craftier than any of us. Mm-hmm. I like the witches. The witches, uh, I think, did a had a good role in in the book and also in the film, which we'll definitely get to. I think they they did a great job of um, showing these characters. They they had like a small part, but yet it was very pivotal in the whole thing. And what was so interesting to me, you know, this, this novel came out in 1998, so it was. Uh, not too too much between the novel and the book, but still enough time. And, and what I appreciated was the fact that they took the spirit of this book and really expanded upon it. That's what I want a movie to do. I don't need it to be 100% faithful to it, but it, take the spirit and expand upon it and take it from there. And, uh, and that's what the movie for me certainly did, and that's why it was the breath of fresh air when it first came out. Right, and that's why I also liked the movie because I felt like they added actual more fantasy elements 
um, with that creative license that they had. And they, they built different characters up more, and we'll definitely get into that. But not once did it take away from the characters and who they are um, and their true selves, but it added more to the fan fantasy world and the things and the people and the situations that they were in just added more magic, which helps with an adventurous story. Yeah, and, and the thing... What I loved about the movie, and you know, talking similarities, they, they took that pace of the book, that rapid pace, and visualized it. You're always seeing stagecoaches. You're always seeing people moving, running, and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, and whatnot. And, and and I appreciated that. One of the biggest differences, to me, I know you you might disagree, and people at home might disagree, but was the fact of giving it a deadline. You know, in in the movie, he has a deadline like before the before the birthday, he has to get back. Yeah. Right. Um, and in the in the book, it's like just go off on an adventure and find the star. Yeah, and that's what I was surprised having watched the movie several times. Um, it it seemed like all this this whole adventure that they were on only took maybe one or two weeks, like a really short amount of time in real time. And then the book, it seemed like it took years. For him to go on this adventure and then return. One of my favorite, I, I definitely had a double take moment because I was, you know, when when they first get sort of dropped off post the cloud uh, ship scene, mm-hmm. they're like, "All right, well, we, it'll still be another eight weeks." So, but we got you close enough. I was like, eight weeks, close <laughs> enough, right? And they're walking, they see the stone, and it's at 60 miles to the village of the wall. And they're like, oh, it'll take maybe a day. Like, okay, so the time limit of how they're traveling didn't seem like there was any limits. But in the movie, obviously, you have to have a whole book condensed into two hours. And it felt like that. But that helps with the pace that everybody was still traveling at a rapid pace, literally, where in the book, it's like it, I think it had a harder time, or not really a harder time, but just it was less descriptive of how long it took everybody to get where they were going. Yeah. Well, I'm pleased with that because though Tolkien was his inspiration, Tolkien definitely has a way of just he he's great with language, but nonetheless, it's the hobbits walked, and then they walked, and then they walked over a mountain, and then they walked over a river, and then they picked up some water to drink at the river. I didn't need that. Like, <laughs> just just keep the story going. Right. And we've talked about another book, The Revenant, where you know the main character had to walk and travel over a course of months, and just him healing and stuff. So, like, we've definitely had our fair share of authors who spend a lot of time and. And it's very descriptive of how much time it takes to get to somewhere, but I'm glad it wasn't as descriptive in this book because that just allows you to get lost in what they're doing, not how long it's taking. Exactly. So let's talk about the development of this movie. Originally, Miramax was had the rights, but overall, Neil Gaiman felt that it wasn't a right fit. Creatively, they didn't understand it and so forth. And and then Terry Gilliam and Matthew Vaughn kind of stepped into the picture. Time went on only because uh, Vaughn was doing some other stuff, whether it be Layer Cake, X-Men, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Which, in a way, was good, though, because it allowed them at the time to really think about it. And then, you know, finally, Matthew Vaughn was able to direct the movie. 
Yeah, and I'm glad he got on board and helped, and Paramount helped with the distribution ultimately at the end of the film. But Gaiman and Vaughn, you know, they, they started their collaboration, and it was actually uh, Gaiman who introduced Vaughn to the screenwriter Jane Goodman, Goldman, sorry, and that's how Jane Goldman got on board with the whole screenwriting and screen adapting from the book to the to film. And then from there, that's where it all just finally the ball started rolling and rolling it did i'm just i know we'll talk about this i guess let's talk about it now only because i really applaud the actors who portrayed the characters i think they got casting 100 percent right and not that you needed big names in those roles to do it right mm-hmm. but i just enjoyed everyone's level to commit to it and the passion with which they did it. Yeah, and I think that that's the great thing about these characters. They are fantasy, so you can expand upon, you know, drama and realism, especially when it came to Robert De Niro, a very well-established Academy Award winner, but playing a, a, a fluffy captain in, in this type of role, you think someone who's as well-established as Robert De Niro, but playing something as ridiculous as this character, you it definitely shows that these characters were for fun and for the passion of, of just acting and being in a film. And it's not, it not once did a dent on his career whatsoever. And even Michelle Pfeiffer. I love Michelle Pfeiffer, just her as an actress. And she played the evil witch to such great extent. I loved watching her. She was gorgeous, um, like following and everything that she was doing. But yeah, she's so good at being evil at the same time. She was great. And I really can't picture anyone else doing this role no she she did such an amazing job with her bitchiness if you will (laughs) because the 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 amazing part is and not not in a conceited way although perhaps for the um for for the witch it was she knows how gorgeous she could be right (laughs) but but because she doesn't have the star's heart it's irking on her, and, and and what I love is the visualization of it, like whether it's her, you know, skin a little skin bit falling and, and, and so forth. She's just annoyed by it because she knows her true, well, at least outward beauty, you know, whether she has actual true beauty, internal beauty, mm-hmm. remains to be debated. But, uh, yeah, 100%. Loved it. All yeah, the way I love Michelle Pfeiffer, and she's gorgeous in and of herself too. And I, and I liked how there there are some actors who are like big names, but are really concerned about their looks. And Michelle Pfeiffer, this character is heavy makeup, and she went in balls to the wall, and like understand that this is an an old witch who is physically deteriorating because she doesn't have magic, and she just went for it, and she and she doesn't care anything about the looks. It was just for like the pure talent and having. <laughs> an awesome character on screen absolutely and of course uh for me claire danes as as the star literally figuratively (laughs) literally fantastic job i thought worked well with uh especially next to charlie cox yeah you know admittedly i i've watched claire danes over the years just growing up as a teenager and stuff and uh when I first, I remember when I first watched the movie, I was taken aback by Claire Dane's accent, only because I know she's American. She doesn't have a British accent. So it took me like five minutes to, like, okay, she's British, moving forward. It wasn't bad. I think she did a great job of uh, being 
kind of irritated towards Tristan, which understandably so in her given her situation she just fell from this from the sky she's gonna be impatient but she warmed up too because she's great at drama and romance that's what she's good as an actor for house. so it was very realistic yeah that that was the thing too when you, when you speak about her annoyance with tristan i thought she 100 percent nailed that and if there's anything that they 100 percent got right in terms of what the book represented and Movie-wise, what they were able to show was the star's true journey in terms of emotion. Mm-hmm. Because it's such a fantastic idea. A star falls down and, oh, it's not like the – even as Tristan says in the book and the movie, like, oh, you're not just this ball of whatever. <laughs> yes. you're, yeah. you're, you're a woman. Oh, you're the star. <laughs> you're the star. <laughs> I love that delivery. Uh, and so – and yeah, she she has this annoyance of like, wait, I have to come with you? Like, you think I'm a piece of property? And and yeah, she just warms up, and and of course that happens in the in the book as well. And true true to the form, they got it 100 percent right. Right, and I like in also in the book and the movie they did a good job of showing Yvain's progression from like a star is you're not really thinking of it as a human being, but being transformed into a human. It slowly showed her personality and her humanistic qualities where in the movie there's a whole scene where she's finally, you know, professing her love to Tristan and she under she starts to finally understand humans and what they do and the crazy things that they do when they're in love and she she understands what humans are going through because she's going through it and um, I thought that was very realistic and I enjoyed it. What I appreciated about the movie version is they took that concept and and expanded upon that idea because in the book they don't really talk about it where, yeah, as a star you sort of look down on the earth and, and you observe it. Mm-hmm. But you're right. In this sense, in the movie, they were literally able to take her and now she's being like, okay, well, basically she's made that connection of like, wow, I didn't really – even though I observed, I haven't really learned. Mm-hmm. She didn't know because she never experienced it. it. It's one thing to look upon. It's a, it's another thing to actually live it. And um, I thought that was a great portrayal and, and, and just a realistic thing that people go through um, once they realize that moment. Like, oh, this is what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I loved it. And it was so innocent, too. And I think in the movie they did a great job of balancing like it, what could have been a really serious slash cheesy profession of love. But it was also nicely mixed with comedy because he is a mouse in mm-hmm. the form of – so he's not really like hearing it from person to person. It was person to mouse. It, it, just, it was light, but light enough to take seriously. So. Let's talk about Sienna Miller because her as Victoria Forrester, I thought if there's any change that they made, they made her, in a good way in the movie, less desirable. Yeah. I mean, not not physically, Sienna Miller, gorgeous, mm-hmm. but just her attitude it was all beauty and no substance whatsoever. Right, personality. And I think they did a good job in the movie because it clearly establishes, like, oh, what is Tristan doing, agreeing to do this for this horrible woman who clearly does not belong with her or she doesn't belong to him. And and I like that because they did a good job of showing that she's not the right girl 
and he will eventually fall in love with someone else, which is Yvain, who's obviously the better choice. And I like that because in the book, he, he Tristan's is like so obsessed with her, really. It's like Victoria this, Victoria that. But then Victoria literally goes away. But then when he comes back to talk to her, even she had like a very um, understandably, you know, like in understood his situation and like actually felt bad like i know you made this promise to me and you set off and did this for me and i feel bad that i did this instead like she she was very understanding the whole situation and you don't understanding and guilt ridden yeah i the the mo- one of the more painful lines was the fact of i didn't know which was better for you to come back and for like or essentially she says i didn't know what was worse for you to come back and me have to marry you or for you never come back and therefore be dead mm-hmm. and i was like oh damn yeah that's and- that's compassion i mean it's not great that that's your line of thinking but to understand that wow that's something's wrong on that right and she was also torn it was like is someone else is waiting for me as well, but I was waiting for you. And so she had that realistic um, storyline too, just as a person who actually had a conscience, where this Victoria in the movie really didn't care about anything. She she was more shallow in the movie. Yes. Which is unfortunate, I guess, for women, especially in today's day and age. Yeah, it was not a great portrayal for this particular character. Yeah. But worked nonetheless yeah all right so let's talk about other changes because um certainly as far as like the climax of the of the book goes it just kind of happened and it didn't uh you know we, we got to more important things if you will which was emotional beats rather than action whereas in the movie we got tons of action (laughs) a lot of action which i enjoyed in both uh let's talk about the book first because i felt the book was way more expository um with lady una i felt she had a way bigger role in the book because she's the one who's explaining everything to everybody and she i I believe she meets everybody it's like she she, there's a scene where she's like with septimus with Victoria with the witch like and she's the one explaining like oh no Tristan you're the the last son um and it's like she's giving all the exposition to everybody which I didn't expect because of her character being a slave and in bird form you wouldn't think it'd be from this person that you physically really never saw mm-hmm. yeah I didn't, I didn't think about it in that sense either uh, mainly Perhaps just because I, I was so thrown off by the end where Tristan and, and, and her are fighting over how long they're going to take to get back. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I enjoyed it because I, I think it, I, I really enjoyed that it was like Lady Una because after all the slavery that she unfortunately had to go through, at the end, she was the one who actually came, became, you know queen of everything and she had her regency before tristan ever did because in the movie he just immediately got the seat and and the mother was just there but so i like that i found that actually very realistic that she would come back to power mm-hmm. and then tristan would come in when it was his time it, it gave her yeah it, it's a lot more poetic certainly because it gives her importance like she's not just her importance is not having birth the, the, the next heir 
Mm-hmm. She runs the thing. So, yeah, 100%. Uh, I guess we can say Neil Gaiman is good to women. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> That's I, what I we're agree. learning. I will read more of his books if he establishes more strong women. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Coraline, even though she's a child, she's a... She's a good. strong protagonist, yes. Um, Agreed. Anyway, uh, but just in general, too, like when Septimus, like that whole uh, encounter in the book... He's going to uh, Diggory's Dig, right? That's the name of it, I believe. <laughs> and that's where you know everyone has to cross through here, and then they'll get to to Wall. With that, <clears throat> he's essentially just avenging Primus because he's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the next in line, and I'm gonna burn this house down. And if the person, if for some reason they survive it, I'll club them to death. And the way. It, perspires a very comedic what a good brother <laughs> uh but just the fact like i said it, it, it's just very simplified versus in the movie i mean we, we get left and right magic and so forth it's he's part of the whole third act trying to kill tristan too um i i liked I liked his character more in in the movie, admittedly, so because I felt in the book when it got to the whole house bit, and and I felt like Septimus' story just kind of ended once Luna explained that Tristan is actually the last blood heir, and Septimus literally just kind of went away, and I felt he his storyline just br- abruptly ended, and we never saw him actually ever again. Where and the the book. Uh, sorry, we were in the movie. He had like a full arc in a way, and even ended comedically too with the you know whole voodoo doll fighting, and then also just physically in in or corpore- corporeally non corporeally with his brothers in the, in the ghost. So there was there was a lot of com- comedic elements to his character too, as serious. And then I think Mark Strong is such a good strong actor we've talked about him a lot in our movie discussions he's such a good actor and to also play um comedy as well with fantasy he did a great job absolutely and i i I really appreciate in the movie that they really ran with all the dead brothers because you're right in that sense it became a missing component of it whereas in the movie they were ever present even if just visually you know then that's that's what sort of makes it easy they use the tools that they had available to them which is the frame mm-hmm. and just put them there yeah i love the brothers in the movie because i think they were obviously the comic beats in the movies especially when you know one's being the creeper looking in on them making out and they're like pervert you know <laughs> all that like there's just good moments where the brothers were inserted when they like, especially the moment where I remember when I first watched this movie, I laughed out loud because I think it was just such good timing, was when Septimus and Una first saw each other again, and then all the brothers were like, sister, you're here. Um, like, they were just inserted so well into comedic jokes. And, uh, and even in the book, it's kind of, I don't want to say weird, but they're just there. You're reading, like, Five gray guys are also in the room, but, but then when Tristan looks back, they're gone. You're like, okay, they're they're just beings that are there, and we just have to accept it as authors, or as readers. But in the movie, they're there for a comedic element. Mm-hmm. Indeed, and uh, so we talked a little bit about Lady Una, but also let's talk about her captor, right? Because in the in the book, I I really liked it. 
you know, all the various, especially what I appreciate about the movie is that overall the beats, um, certainly in the beginning, to me, they kept the beginning and the middle very similar. Similar. And then the ending is what primarily changed. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the captor, uh, you know, she's. Ditchwater Cell in, uh, in the movie. And in the book, it's Madame Samelle. Yes. Uh, what That's was what was the uh, stuff? What was the truth stuff that that she had? Um, oh, the, the, Limbus Grass. That's right. You gave me Limbus Grass. How dare you steal truths from my list by feeding me Limbus Grass? Yeah, so good. <laughs> I I thought the curse worked really well in both the movie and the book, as far as not being able to see the star. Yeah, it, it definitely visually, I think they did a great job in the movie. They visually explain why Yvane couldn't talk to Ditchwater Cell or, you know, the other way around. Because in the book, you can easily misread that or, like, not fully understand it. Because uh, they did have the same moment when Yvane's trying to talk to her and she's obviously ignoring her. Um, I think visually, that that's where, like, the filmic elements and adaptation, like, really helps just with the storytelling. Like, oh, yeah, she put a curse on her. She can't see her. I thought he did, uh, to me, he did a good jo- good enough job doing it because he, he he was able to tell it from both perspectives. He, he's seeing it from uh, Tristan's perspective, but then he also switches into her perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, it, it worked for me. Yeah, it's an easily blended narrative, and I think that's what's good because it was it was all third person. But uh, he has every voice is easy to understand. That's why we can switch from person to person so fluidly. Yeah, and some people don't have that ability though. No. So uh, Neil Neil definitely does. As far as why adapt this movie or why adapt this book into a movie, well, to me, it has. All the tropes that you would want to see in fantasy, and it, it just really honors them in a fun way. It's there's definitely an emotional component to it, but it doesn't take it ever self like too self righteous. Like this is not no offense to Lord of the Rings. This is not Lord of the Rings. We're not <laughs> like saving Mordor here. Yeah, we're just going to get a star. Yeah, and but the and the great thing is everyone also had their own different motives. It wasn't really towards other people. It's just like their, their own self purpose in life. Um, I I enjoy that because again with the three different stories, it could get really confusing, but never it, it never was. And for the filmic elements, you have multiple different things in this that can appeal to a huge wide audience. You have a romantic story. You have an adventure story. You have magic. You So you already have a fantasy story. Um, and just the characters. You have an old woman. You have old man. You have a younger, t- you know, like younger, I want to say like 20, 30 year olds. Like there are different age and demographics in this book, too, where it appeals to a lot of different people just in the world as you're reading. So it has a wide audience that could enjoy the story in and of itself that could also translate to the film. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I appreciated was the language of the book in general. Because, you know, much like Tolkien, like... You know, one of the things that does scare me is that you're going to read another Neil Gaiman book and be like, ooh, this is completely different. Because he used purposeful language within the storytelling of this, uh, I think, brilliantly. But 
to me, Gaiman is actually kind of somewhat of a chameleon. Like, his style Mm. is the ability to adapt to whatever genre he's trying out versus other writers like... like he, like, Nicholas like, Sparks only does romance, you know. I can't imagine him doing like a thriller mystery. You know? But even so, like, just in that same vein, you know, like, um, you know, the way he describes certain things, like, I'm, I'm sure even though it's romance, it's not like he uses different language just because he wants to try something within that. Like, mm-hmm. he wants to try a modern romance versus like an 18th century, and all of a sudden, you know, so Gaiman. The, the language becomes part of the art. Yeah, and I think he does it so well because he's very descriptive, but not. But it's not like in a weird uh, written like Shakespeare writes tends to write in iambic pentameter. There's a rhythm to his writing, and Neil Gaiman is just like so descriptive, but so easy and understanding and comprehensive. A hundred percent, and. Uh... You know what I like what I love about it is it has that whimsical side of a of a true fairy tale for kids, but it's um it's for adults. Yeah. Uh, and when I was reading it, I thought it was a young adult because I was breezing right through it. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> um, any other observations about the book and or movie that you want to talk about before we? Um, can we talk a little bit more about Captain Shakespeare? Sure. Because even in the book, obviously Captain, like they they dealt with the the pirates for only a short amount of time, maybe a couple pages, and that was it. And and we even got the name the ship Perdita, but like we didn't even really get the pirates' names, not everyone on board. Um, but I loved in the movie, because we did have Robert De Niro, we do have a face to the the character. I'm glad that they actually gave him a, a fun, more bigger character. And, like, he he does a great job of being, like, serious, too. And he can have that authoritative leadership that people can believe that he's a captain of a ship, but also can have fun while dressing up and, like, <laughs> dancing around like a fool that's also fun too and was it necessary no was it fun absolutely well two things i'll say on that one the fact that his crew because you it was obviously his worry that his crew wouldn't respect him but the fact that nonetheless they did mm-hmm. that uh that went against convention and i appreciated that secondly you know while they're on the ship there's a purpose to it. They're learning things. And so they, they took advantage of that moment. Like I said, like we've said, they expanded. The, the book overall is a very fun, almost outline for what the movie became. Mm-hmm. And they took this moment. Oh, we have this idea. Great. Let's expand upon that. Yeah. And we have Robert De Niro. Let's give him more to do. And that's why I think he took it. It's just he saw it. He's like, all right, I'm in. This is fun. Yeah. And even and and I think this is where talking about how storylines mesh with each other so well, even uh, Captain Shakespeare met up with Septimus or more so Septimus guys like raided his ship. But like that literally crashing of storylines, but still moves the plot forward because uh, Shakespeare helped get Tristan and Yvain to this certain checkpoint in the story, and that's where they met up with Septimus, you know? That's, like, how people come to the exact same moment. Absolutely. Brilliantly done. Indeed. I think... <laughs> Say what you will about Raging Bull, this might be Robert De Niro's <laughs> finest work. <laughs> um, definitely most memorable. One of his most memorable characters. 
All right. Anything else? Um, Any other things you absolutely adored? I liked, actually, in the movie, how we did have a narrator. like in, Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen, also brilliant, brilliant actor, Shakespearean actor himself, too. And in the book, I think did a great job of establishing um, the lands. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the wall. This is London. This is X, Y, and Z. Um, and he he started it, and he ended the film, too. Uh, and... Was it needed? I think so, actually, in in the movie. You're, what I'll say about that, I think it was needed, but from the perspective that it just made it fun, right? I think if they really wanted to, they could have told the story without narration. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, says... Because I, what I hate is when they people use narration as a crutch. Yeah. This was like, okay, we're going into fairy tales. We're going to have a lot of fun with it. And you're used to having a narrator. Um, it, it's no different than like the Princess Bride. You know, the the grandfather's reading to the kid. Right. So in that same vein, we want to give you this level of comfort, not because we need to. We're more creative than that. If we wanted to like explain the rules of this, we could. But it's more fun. Yeah, and I think the ending of this book with the narration too also visually showed that they had a more romantic type of ending. That I definitely feels with that every movie has to end happy. Not really. But, like, this movie definitely had a happier ending where both Yvain and Tristan, they lived their long lives together, happy in the kingdom, and then they ended up literally among the stars together. That That's a romantic ending. Where in the book, unfortunately, uh, Tristan dies just thanks to human old age, and Yvain takes the throne, and they end up technically separated. And that's not as sad and as... or That's a sadder, more unsatisfactory type of ending. Indeed. Yeah, that, that's true. But in the movie, they ended it happy. <laughs> they did. They lived happily ever after, and so will you. <laughs> Hopefully all of us, yes. Indeed. All right. Um, well, thank you guys, as always, for joining us. Uh, keep commenting. Let us know what you thought of the book, the movie, and also... We're open to recommendations. Obviously, we've got our next one, but um, we don't have anything solidified after that. So, by all means. Yeah. Uh, so, we'll be doing A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, obviously adapted into TV shows, movies. There's so much to talk about. Multiple and, iterations. Uh, in particular, if there's a specific adaptation you want to 100% us to touch upon, for me, um, I'm a fan of the Muppet Muppets. Christmas Carol. Yeah, I was going to say the Muppets. So, Everyone loves the Muppets. Uh, anyway, thank you guys as always. Truly appreciate it. Um, and in the meantime, where can people interact with you? Everyone can follow me on Twitter and all those fun places at Serafini TV. That's right. And I'm at Phil Svitak. And of course, me and Marissa also do another show called Anatomy of Movie. It's over on popcorntalk.com. Check it out. We do pretty much this but for movies and we break down the production side of things the development side of things the acting and everything in between it's down to even the numbers how much money you made and how its reception was anyway thank you for joining us yet again we'll see you guys next time on another book circle adapted show from executive producers kevin undergaro maria menounos and jeffrey masters thanks for tuning in to book circle online Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. To suggest a book title or their author, 
you can tweet us at Book Circle On. This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in.